This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Rental Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Rental Street for handlebars, slip-ons, chains and sprockets. Welcome to today's Paddock Pass Podcast. Steve Ings and Gordon Ritchie taking you up to action from the Navarra round of World SBK and Gordo. You're just after getting back home to Scotland, and I'll be honest, I've brought the Spanish weather back to Ireland. It's been uh, pretty nice to get the last days of summer at home. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. The only problem is that I'm thankfully very busy, so I haven't been out in it. I've seen none of it. The only sunshine I got the last couple of days is riding my motorbike back from Edinburgh Airport, where I found I had a leaking front fork oil seal, which is not a nice thing to come home to, but... Uh, yeah, no, it's great. The weather's fantastic. It's uh, We don't always get that in uh, our part of the world, Steve. So we're always very thankful when we do. Yeah, I have to say, I'm quite thankful for it as well, considering that we've got the busiest stretch that we've had in World Superbikes for a long time. Magni Core, then a week off, then the triple headers, then the final two flyaways this season. It's going to be pretty hectic going forward, Gordo. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next few weeks, but I'm also slightly dreading it because there's a few things I do now in between races, and now the gap between the races is uh, shrunk to almost nothing. Uh, thankfully, they're all in the same part of the world, so getting between them, and I hopefully will be taking a bike again this year to do it like I did last year. That's my aim. Uh, I'm waiting on final confirmation to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, no, it's going to be busy, and it's already started getting busy. That's the, the best thing about it, as we're starting to ramp up now. I think the intensity for the riders is going to be mad um, and that makes a very big difference um, in people's approach. I think a lot of people are going to have to be thinking a little bit different than normal because there is no recovery time, there's no development time, there's no change time, there's no test time. Once we get really going, everybody's just going to be on the road. Even that gap between Magni and the Spanish rounds, you're going to have to prepare for three rounds in Iberia right after. So... There's no normal time from now on. This 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 season is going to be unusual. And last time we did a triple header in World Superbike. I mean, I'm an old git, but I can't remember doing it for a while. Yeah, Gordo, I can't remember any time we've done a triple header in World SBK. I remember us having some back-to-backs, obviously, but uh, never anything like this. And it's going to be hectic all the way through. And uh, you're going to stay down in Iberia, obviously, for that trip. I think I might end up flying home between them because I think there's a, a late Sunday night flight from Barcelona back to Dublin. So that might be an option for me. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how everyone deals with it. If you pick up an injury, it's going to have a big knock-on effect. It's going to be massive for what's a very tight championship battle right now. And that kind of brings us into our moment of the weekend because for me, it was the moment that Scott Redding went through and Jonathan Ray in race two. And suddenly, we had top reckon Johnny level on points at the top of the standings Scott Redding closing right in on them as well and I think that's been for me the big moment of the weekend what about for you Gordo? Yeah in terms of on track action that was it um, I think the the momentous part of the weekend was another new track which was actually quite well received it doesn't look like a, uh, it's got its own character it's quite small but it actually offered up a much better event than some people thought it might be it's a nice modern track, it all worked. And the racing was good. The fact that it's such a difficult track to to pass on, the fact that it had such uh, such tight corners that some of the bikes didn't actually have a first gear to really handle it very well, um, and the fact that there were no obvious overtaking places meant that riders were having to go a little bit off-piste and being a bit more creative, and any kind of mistake was 
immediately followed by somebody making a pass in a place that they might not even have expected or planned to do a pass. Um, and even that incredibly fast first corner, which kind of saves the track in a wee way from being a kind of stadium-only style thing, that allowed people to, okay, I'm going to be a bit brave here and go inside. And that, I mean, there was a couple of crashes there and there's thankfully lots of runoff. Um, but yeah, that's a big sorter of a corner. You have to be brave there as well as be clever and skillful and everything else you have to be. Yeah, because it was quite cool because that was very much like the end of the back straight in Mizano through Curvone. And then the next couple of sections were a lot like Portimao at the start of the lap. Then you were into Aragon. And then you were into basically Navarra on its own with all those first gear corners in the in the third sector of the lap. It was it's a very unique circuit in a lot of ways. It is, um, and it's very, very, very bumpy. I can't use the word very enough. It's incredibly bumpy. It's quite astonishingly bumpy. That's the one thing that if they got rid of those bumps would turn it into an even higher class venue than it is now. But the bumps also made it very interesting. So. It, it's a it's a good place to go. We had plenty of space. There was no three hundreds this weekend, and if they ever do bring the three hundreds, which might be quite well suited to it because it's such a slow track for the majority of it, um, then it would get pretty tight. Um, but yeah, it was. It's a unique track. It's a different track. It's a new track, and I can't emphasize enough to people how interesting it is for somebody who's been going to the races as long as I have to go to a new racetrack. Every time we go to a new one, I just get excited. It, it's it's new. I love the, the thrill of the new. Nothing was perfect, and they've got a, a few years planned to upgrade and, and organise, but it literally was, um, it was... It was a very good first attempt, and it's a lot well, more you, ready. Well, you've been spoiled lately then, Gordo, with Most and then Navarra, with two new ones back-to-back. Yeah, I wasn't spoiled at Most by lots of the facility and so on, um, and it definitely needs some safety work. We said that at the time, and it's still true, and people should be listening to it um, for the rider's sake. Um, the facilities need upgraded there, but Navarra's pretty close. And I, and I love a new track, and the layout at Most is fantastic. It was brilliant. Couldn't be more different from... Navarra, that's what I want. You you want riders to demonstrate, and this is an, a, a key point, forget what we think about it, the riders have to demonstrate an ability to handle all kinds of tracks. Their machines have to demonstrate a flexibility to be able to handle all different tracks. If every single track we went to was Valencia, or every single track we went to was Aragon, you would have a very different setup for a World Championship. The fact that we go to so many different tracks, you'll have one bike and one rider better next weekend than the other one. The guy that can handle that and the bike can handle that best is going to win the World Championship. Yeah, because that's what uh, I think is misunderstood off an awful lot right now because people just look at rev limits as one of the, always one of the big talking points. They don't look at the overall package and how the season has played out. We've got Top Rack and Johnny level on points. We've got Scott Redding after a few really miserable rains earlier in the summer he's now got himself back into within 40 points of the championship lead Ducati, Yamaha and Kawasaki are all pretty much level on points in the manufacturers championship that's your best result from each round so for all those manufacturers they find different ways of effectively setting the same lap time we saw at the last two tracks that Kawasaki were right on the limit Top Rack and Yamaha were, were strong. We saw that as well by the fact that Locatelli's made a big step forward. Redding's made a big step forward and Ducati are competitive. This was the first time where we saw Ducati had that big straight line speed advantage for a long time. You could see it where Scott could comfortably make the moves on Johnny. He couldn't do it on the Yamahas. So, you know, it was 
you know, a bit of a, a difference out there. But one of the big reasons for that isn't so much just from the sheer revs. It's just from the fact that Kawasaki are limited in how they can set up their bike. Their gear ratios have to be a very specific way. So with some tracks, not having the extra revs means that they have to change their first gear to give them more options during the course of the lap so it can hinder them a little bit on the exit of some corners. I think that's what we saw this week where you had a perfect storm for people to talk about the Ducati power advantage again. Yes, um, the power you produce is one thing. The How you use the gears is, is entirely a different uh, kettle of fish. And you can't change the internal gearbox ratios. So you can't put in a shorter first gear and keep the, the, the ratio for your tallest gears. You're not allowed to do that anymore. You choose it at the start of the season and then it's back to the old-fashioned chains and sprockets. Wheel, and changing your wheel bases as you do so and another link in the chain to maintain that. It, it's back to the old school in a way. And when you don't have, when you have fewer revs than the other people to play with, you therefore will bog down when you get to the absolute slowest corner. And there's nothing you can do about it because if you go shorter on the overall gearing at a track like Navarra, where you're you're in sixth gear before you get to that tip in point of the fast right hander, you'll be bouncing off the rev limiter, which when you do it a hundred times a weekend, a hundred and fifty times a weekend, is not going to do your engine life any good. Um, and also everybody's going to go past you if if they, if you're bouncing off a limit and they're not they're just going to pass you every single lap so compromise and they would argue too much compromise yeah and uh, obviously for chains and sprockets Gordo you can go to rental.com for that KRT probably have it in their parts bin but for everyone else then go to the website uh, might as well plug it in I'll plug it in don't worry about that Gordo but uh, I want to move on then Gordo because we're going to come back to that in a little bit later on because obviously the the top rack versus Ray versus Reading battle was really interesting but we're recording this Tuesday morning and n- big news just dropped Alvaro Bautista confirmed to go to Ducati and Scott Reading obviously earlier in the week it was announced that he was going to BMW so Scott's been upstaged by Alvaro Bautista's announcement because now everyone's raging about Alvaro Bautista going back to Ducati. <laughs> Ducati missing out on Scott. Once Scott's hit his form, he's suddenly winning races. He's giving himself the chance of winning the World Championship. And suddenly it's, what are Ducati doing? This is the guy that could have won three races at the weekend. He's got that form three rounds in a row. And they're going to go back to Alvaro Bautista. Yeah, I mean, there's two two elements to that there. When we heard that um, it was confirmed that Reading was going and going at this stage of the season, um, he's about the least... Um, BMW rider, you can imagine, they've got a very straight corporate image, etc. Um, and therefore, it's a wonderful sign, and it's going to be an incredible match between those two uh, groups of people, the Scott Reading side and the BMW side, and obviously, each of them understand that, and have gone ahead with it. I think it's going to be another dynamic in the championship next year. It is odd the way that uh, he's gone to someone else when he's as successful as he is. You can argue two opposite points and in every point between the two. One, that he was hired to win this World Superbike Championship and hasn't done it. And even though he crept closer to the weekend, he's still 30-odd points behind. Um, From Ducati's point of view, you're looking at, well, we hired you to win the World Championship and you haven't done it. So we'll have to try something else. You can look at it from uh, Scott's point of view as well. I nearly did it last year. I had a good go at it last year in such a weird debut season, his rookie season I remember in Superbike last year different bikes from BSB, it's another challenge and different riders um, and now, and and then you look at him thinking well, he might think he didn't get a fair shake at, because he's doing so well and they've wanted to replace him um, and probably 
wanted to pay him less money because he hasn't won the World Championship. So you can see why he's done it. Um, and then Bautista. So we all thought, wow, this is mad. You know, this is the maddest thing that's going to happen. And then the rumours of Bautista going to Ducati, we knew was going to happen. By Sunday night, everybody was kind of secretly, quietly saying, yeah, 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 yeah. And people outside were going, not a chance. And it happened. It's been communicated today. Officially, yeah. it's actually happened. Well, I remember I started hearing about it in Most, and we mentioned it in the broadcast then on Sunday in Most, and uh, I kind of half thought, well, it sounds crazy enough that it has to come from something, and then it made sense why in Donington we had started to hear rumours about Ducati looking to move on from Reading or at least get him to take a big pay cut. So that kind of then, once you heard that Bautista was being in talks with them or being linked to it, you're there, well, maybe Alvaro was willing to ride for big bonuses like he did in 2019 to get off the Honda, get himself onto a bike like that again, give himself a chance of winning. So it all started to add one thing into the other. And then in uh, in Navarra, I saw Alvaro getting his picture taken by Ducati's photographer. And I was thinking, well, there you go. That's definitely going to be the the done deal. And, uh, and it's all sorted. But it is a strange one, Gordo, whenever... And you've had this year on year. Anytime there's the, the rider market discussions... You're looking for any tidbit you can find, really, and uh, you hear lots of lots of whispers. You have to discount certain certain rumors that you hear. You have to take seriously other rumors you hear, depending on who's telling you them. And I knew for I knew for the Reading stuff that there was a lot of there was a lot of good intel about him and BMW, and most of that comes from the fact that you know Ducati weren't happy, he wasn't happy, and fair enough, it's all working well the last three rounds. But they've got an awful lot more data than just the last three rounds to look at. Yes, um, they do. And it's it's in, it's a very interesting thing about um, Reading that he's such a kind of uh, self... He knows himself very well and he understands who he is. Um, and I think he's just backed himself to do just as well in the BMW as he's going to get a chance to do in Ducati. He's been complaining for a while that the development of the bike's not going forward. There is obviously some issue with the overall design of that bike that it doesn't let it repeat from track to track. If Ducati could repeat their best results every track, they'd be away. They would have won every World Championship in the last wee while. Um, there's also a, there's, there's lots of things to look at why they might want to take Bautista back. There are actually so many things to, to talk about and think about this that we won't get through them all, but we'll cover a few here. Bautista is a small rider, and from the very beginning in 2019, Ducati said part of the reason that Bautista's going so well is the fact that he's so small and he's controlling the bike so well and it helps to make the bike's performance even better. Now, there's definitely a, a, a physical reason for that. That's just It's just engineering. He's going to accelerate faster down the straights than other people. And then he's got more top end at the end of the straights. That's a double win. So they're thinking maybe two smaller riders are going to be better than the, the, the two big riders. Certainly... It makes sense on paper, but with we've got more than that, haven't we? We've got what Bautista did in reality for the first third of the season in 2019. So they're going, it might be they're going backwards and so on, but Bautista knows what he can do in a Ducati, and he's also learned after a year and a half he can't do that in a Honda, and maybe no one can, the way things are with that bike now. So he's looking at, well, what am I going to do next? Even if he, he rides for nothing for Ducati next year, He's had two years' worth of HRC salary. So maybe he could now afford to ride for the another manufacturer again and, and swallow his pride. I mean, it was rancorous when he left. We had the director of Ducati Racing 
tweeting about it and him tweeting back. It was all a bit, bit wrong. And who are the? He's he's back in the fold again. That's that's an amazing story. Yeah, for Claudio Domenicali, his his statement on Twitter was. What Bautista says that he left Ducati for Honda when we decided to sign Scott Redding and it wasn't about the money. Well, we made him an offer with six zeros at the end of it and he still decided to leave. Life is about choices. Ducati made the choice to take him back. He's made the choice to go back. I'm really excited to see how it works because I think it's easy to only look at Bautista's time with Ducati in terms of, God, he was so dominant in those first four rounds, then it all, it all went to hell. But over the course of the season... He averaged top four on the grid. He averaged finish on the podium. He had, I think it was 16 wins, 24 podiums. He had the crashes, obviously enough, and, and the season turned on him from, from that perspective. But in a normal season, if you have a, a, a year like that, it's a fantastic season. The problem for Bautista was it was front-loaded and had all that sense of expectation then going forward. But let's wait and see what he can do whenever he's put back onto that bike for a full season again with three years experience on the Pirelli tires, three years experience on production bikes, bikes that you know aren't as stiff as a MotoGP bike, have the weight transfer very different. I think it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. I think um, Bautista for sure now knows with that time and distance from when he rode the Ducati the last time, what was good about it and what wasn't so good about it. And what he said to me recently is that from his perspective, when he looks back at his performance on the Ducati, he said at the beginning I was trying to I wasn't just trying to win. Once he realized he could win, he says I started trying to overwin. He says and I wanted to win by not ten seconds, but twenty seconds. He wanted to push as hard and as fast as he could to make those wins. And then when he started pushing too far and he got to a track he didn't like, then and crashed. That then all of a sudden he went from overconfidence to, to a, a total opposite in confidence. And then Ducati started asking questions. And then everybody else starts asking questions. And then, whoa, hold on. what What's happened here? Then that starts to play mind games. So I think if he can keep himself under control and, under, and learn the lessons of the past, he might actually be an even more over-the-season potent threat in 2022. Yeah, because I, I remember, Gordon, we were sitting in... It was in the paddock show truck where they were doing the post-live interviews that year in Jerez. And it was after Bautista won on the Saturday and he was sitting there. He was in Spain. He had the fans. Everything was fantastic. And he said, I'm teaching these guys how to ride a superbike. I've changed the game. And then the game changed very quickly on Sunday because that's when he had his first crash. And from that point on, it was like a light switch. And it's in interesting to look back at that season now with you know two years of hindsight. And when you look at the end of his season, Portimao, Magnicor, Argentina and Qatar, he was up there inside the top five pretty much all the way through the season. He won races in especially Argentina, who was really strong. He had podiums in, in all of those tracks. And it's a bit like what you were saying, Gordo. When the Ducati's working well, it's always working well. But it's that little bit fickle as well. And that's where it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Ducati going forward as well. Because what happens with Scott Redding's crew? Bautista's going to bring in all of, all of his people, which then leaves an awful lot of Ducati-contracted engineers looking for a home. Are they going to be involved in some way? Giovanni Krupe, Scott Redding's crew chief, huge amounts of experience. He got brought across from BSB to go to World Superbikes. What happens to him going forward? I think it's going to be really intriguing to see how Ducati place all of their resources within the Superbike program going forward as well. Because someone like Gio, 
could well be really important to have. You know, he might he may not have a role as a crew chief next year, but maybe he's got a, a role as a, a technical liaison underneath. You've got Gigi, Marco, and then maybe someone like Gio, because that's the kind of strategy that an awful lot of manufacturers are using now. Yeah, Yamaha did that, didn't he? Uh, I think they did that with Moro, um, from Mars my understanding. Role, um, SMR brought BMW over. BMW did it with Adrian Gores. Yeah, Adrian's come over there to kind of just keep an eye on everything and make sure everything runs like clockwork um, and use his experience. You can't be experienced. Honda did it with Leon Camier as well. Camier might be down as a team manager, but yeah. his role seems to be liaising back between the race team and Japan. I would actually say his role, looking at that in reality, as it stands, I'm sure it'll change in the future, and that's why he's been given the job title he has, but I'm sure Leon's job is more performance director right now, translation of, of, of possibility into better results on Sunday um, in a very specific way. So, yeah, th- th- there's two ways it can go for Ducati now. One, there's a whole bunch of people from outside, uh, very experienced people, if they do come over, uh, who'll be able to look at it and go, well, why don't we try that? Or try this? Or move away from any kind of conventional wisdom that might have been uh, come through the Ducati family tree? Um, although you've got to imagine that those guys have tried every single possible setup. Um, they also might arrive and find that there are limitations with the bike that they can't fix because it's set. And the other thing, what's the difference between the Ducati and everybody else? The engine, okay, but we know how that can perform. What's the difference chassis-wise? Single-sided swinging arm, and every single person that that has got an opinion about a single-sided swinging arm all agrees on one thing, that you have to make them quite heavily engineered because you're instead of holding the thing in a little box through the rear wheel spindle down both sides of the bike and onto both sides of the swing arm pivot, you've got everything going off one side. Therefore, you have to have that as a bigger, heavier uh, part piece of kit than the equivalent two-sided swinging arm. In general, it's all generalisations. I understand that. But that's the one big thing you put a pointer at. Maybe that's just, in the days with the performance the way it is now, maybe that's a limiting factor. It it, at least begins to make some sense that. Yeah, and uh, we've got limiting factors on the Paddockcast podcast as well. And one of them is we've got to drop in an ad break. So when we come back after the ad break, we're going to have a chat about Scott Redding and BMW. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And Gordo, like I was saying, the the other side of that story is Scott Redding and BMW. Obviously, it's impossible to look at this and think, the guy's leaving Ducati. He's had loads of wins. He's got all this form. He's on the crest of a wave. Why would he go to BMW? Yeah. No, no, the the question is valid, but it's also when you look at the resources and the, the push that BMW have got in there and the expectations they have over themselves... Um, they've got a former world champion in Tom Sykes and uh, a person who could very well be world champion in Michael van der Mark and their best so far as podiums. So you're looking at making a step up in performance. So you're taking a guy who's been winning on a different bike, fine. Um, you, I can see why they're doing it from the point of view of 
Maybe their target next year is they realise they might not be able to fight for the World Championship, but they need to have multiple race wins next year to justify the project, to justify the spend, to to prove they're moving on in an engineering point of view. Um, Sykes was very vocal at the weekend about the, the limitations, his favourite word, the limitations of the bike and what it can't do. And it's doing it even for his cookie riding style compared to Michael Vandermark or anybody else's more conventional riding style. They're having the same issue of corner entry, uh, lack of grip, lack of stability, therefore compromising into the corner and out the corner. And all the riders are having that. So that's an engineering solution. But from point of view of, of reading, if that is the one problem and they can then find a way of fixing it, there's nothing on that BMW that doesn't that, that stops it being a race winning bike for me. Resource, design, everything, and the experience of the people around it all, there's no reason why they can't be at least winning a bucket of races every year. And they've got riders now, and the, the, with reading there, you can't imagine they're going to have less chance of winning races. Um, even if they move Tom Sykes into the secondary team. They're adding, they're not subtracting. I have to say one of the highlights for me this weekend was hearing Tom Sykes say the bike rather than the BMW M1000 or, or, or in the past the Kawasaki Ninja ZX10 or. So I think it was quite interesting and quite telling for just how, how annoyed Tom was. I hadn't quite noticed that myself, but yes, now, now oh. you mention it, yeah, 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 you're, ah, you're breeding someone in there, you might be right, mate, you might be right. But I think I think what was really interesting was the BMW press release announcing Scott Redding to go to BMW also said, oh, we want to keep Tom involved in the project, alluding to a satellite operation. Whenever Tom was asked about this, because I asked him on Friday, I know Charlie Hiscott asked him on Eurosport on Sunday, I'm sure you asked him as well during the weekend, Gordo, about this. What he said, and Tom is his own manager, so there's no discussions that go on without Tom being aware of them. Yes. He said, it's news to me. Communication isn't their big strong suit. And that was a, a clear indication that press release talk is one thing because that's written by a press officer. It's not written by the guys making the decisions. You know, it can be signed off on this, that and the other. But, you know, sometimes you do end up with little tidbits in a press release that aren't really what's happening. This could have been one of those instances. It's possible, and I think maybe they've, uh, behind the scenes, Let's and it's purely hypothetical, but given the reality of what's happened on the ground, if I was to interpret that, you would think that they're, they're expecting Tom to say, okay, as long as I get the, the factory bike, I'll go and ride as a second rider in Bonovo or another way they find to, to keep Tom Sykes. I think they do want to keep Tom Sykes. I think his feedback and development is very good. His riding style is totally different from everybody else. But I think if you change someone on the bike, he'll tell you what it is and what it does right away. There's Everybody that he's ridden for in the past has said that. He's got very clear communication back about bike development, even though it's usually uh, his riding style demands it to go in a different direction from maybe his teammate does. But So they obviously value that. They value Tom. They, they would like to keep him. And I think in a human sense as well, they understand that having him there and the, the input he's had has been good. And in maybe their eyes, they want to reward them. Maybe that's what they're thinking. As I say, it's all hypothetical. But if you were Tom, you might take that as a slap in the face. Say, hold on, I'm a world champion. And if you give me a bike to win races, I'll still, still win races for you. But I need a bike a certain way. And the other guy's not winning races. And, you know, Tom Tom has, has, has shown what he can do. He was on the front row at Navarra in a, a place that they actually tested at. You know, so... 
there, there is a possibility for Tom to stay, but I think in the heart of, heart of hearts, if a factory team came along with an offer from him, he'd rather go somewhere else because he probably feels personally a bit uh, insulted. Yeah, and I, I think it's fair enough as well whenever you look at Tom. I've been critical of Tom a lot in the past in terms of that the tyre issues he had whenever he was with Kawasaki. You know, he didn't he didn't seem to be able to bring that fight to, to Jonathan. He struggled to be able to match his Super Bowl pace in the races. I think this year he's been able to make a massive step with that. It's been pretty clear. Obviously, you expect him to be able to out-qualify the performance of the bike because Tom's so good on a qualifying tyre. But he hasn't dropped like a stone in races. He's kept in that second group, which is where the BMW should be. He's outscored Van der Mark so far this season. He's seventh in the World Championship. I think he's outperformed where he should be. Whenever you look at it, that there's two factory Kawasaki riders, two factory Ducati riders, top rack, Gerloff, Locatelli, you know, strong riders on better bikes than him. And Tom's found himself seventh in the World Championship. I think he is in a position now where if you were to look at the options for Honda, they want to have an experienced rider on one bike, potentially a young rider on the second bike. If your options boil down to Chaz Davis, who's had a shoulder injury this season, notwithstanding, or Tom Sykes, Tom's obviously done a really good job this year. Yeah, um, if that's what Honda want to do now, because obviously they have to replace at least one rider, um, that would be an understandable move. Either of those experienced riders, why wouldn't he be? Chaz has nearly won the World Championship more than once. He's got a bucket of wins. Um, a good development guy, a guy who needs the bike a certain way to, to, to perform at his best or to feel good to perform at his best. And Sykes, even though a very different riding style, is exactly the same mentality. You give him the bike, he can win on and he'll win for you. Um, he's... The reason he's good in qualifying is because the tyre grips there, which stops the problem they've been having of when you start losing rear tyre grip, you can't enter the corner properly, you can't enter it properly, you can't apex properly, you can't apex properly, you can't exit properly. Therefore, the whole corner's wrecked. Rear tyre performance through back torque limiting, through electronics, through good mechanical bike setup is where it's at for racing now. In, in any class with those big massive bikes, you have to control the thing going in. When you do that, the rider can pick his line, go in and make the best of it. It's not about controlling the exit of a corner anymore. It's much more important to control the, or where the problem area lies now is the going into the corner. So it's actually more work put on in the inside. And that's where a style like Tom is where he likes to be hard on the brakes, flick it over and power it out. If he can't pick his lines and do that, He's in trouble. And it was very interesting what Alex Lowe said about Tom's style is finished now. You, you, you can now, because the tyres are getting better, you're using softer and softer tyres. He he basically said that kind of idea of riding a superbike is gone and Sykes couldn't be. He completely disagreed, saying that if you give him the back tyre to go into the corner, his style on a bike that makes 230 horsepower is the only style that's going to win because you have to use that power going out the corner. Super sporting as it were around the corner is important, but getting the power of the ground is where a super bike goes faster than a super sport bike. And uh, there's definitely one bike on the market that's got a lot of power, Gordo. Yeah, too much power, maybe in the wrong places. Um, is the other thing is uh, I'm assuming we're talking about Honda here, Steve. We're not, you know. As... Well, you know, we're on the same we're on the same page, Gordo, as always on the Paddock Pass podcast. Because there's a couple of bikes that are making very good power in that championship, but the Honda the Honda is is the great enigma. Um, when HRC took it over as the previous version of the Fireblade. 
that was the learning year to then finish off the build of the one we've seen for two years and therefore all the lessons were going to be learned how to build a modern bike. In some ways they might have gone too far um, because they've got all this Grand Prix experience and tried to build a kind of across the frame four cylinder using a lot of their MotoGP experience although on a different engine configuration. Um, it's a jewel that I can't tell you how beautiful that little Honda engine is and, and all the parts of it are. It's incredible. The styling's very conventional. It looks like a 600 road bike. There's nothing special about it. But there's fundamental flaws, now we know this, on that bike and the original design, which you can't always change in Superbike. As we've spoken about before, I'm sure any regular listeners understand that you cannot make the bike any softer in terms of the chassis itself you can only add to the chassis you can't remove material make it weaker in any plane so you have to get the original design correct but that's just the the chassis rails themselves where you put it where the engine sits everything else has got to be right as well because there are limits on what you can then change how low how high you can make the bike and that's an issue for honda as well according to a few people i've spoken to we can go into that in a minute yeah, one of the things that I found quite interesting is whenever I've talked to some people anonymously in BSB about the Honda and the Honda works well in BSB trim. Um, one of the big differences between it and the World SBK bike is the rear link and different different elements on the bike like that. That's where they've been able to make a step forward. And it seemed to me very similar to Ducati and BSB. You used to have it where Scott Redding was using the, the Ducati Corsa rear link whereas josh brooks was using the standard link and that seemed to work a lot better for brooks and eventually Reading in his championship winning season did transition to brooks's setup as well and it seems that honda and we've seen this a lot of times in the past with honda they're very married to different options that they've developed and it may not always be the best option and i think as you said gordo you can make the the frame stiffer you can't reduce that stiffness you can't give it a bit more flex so the areas where you can try and do that are swing arm the link different elements like that and you can try and just engineer something a little bit differently but it is very different in world sbk compared to bsb because you've got all that extra power you've got electronics think of different track layouts so there's an awful lot that goes into it and it's going to be interesting to see how they're able to engineer themselves out of what you'd have to say is a is a limitation of the bike just on the basis of the, the road-going development. Well, don't forget, you have to find another second and a half, second, second and a half to be competitive in World Superbike compared to BSB. It's just faster. You have to find that second. So going round a second, a second and a half off the pace of World Superbike, the BSB guys could probably do all day. Um, and the competition in BSB is fantastic. All the bikes seem to be competitive on their day. There's no, doesn't seem to be a dominant bike anymore in BSB. There is no dominant bike in World Superbike, but for different reasons. I think my take on the Honda after talking to people for two years now about this is a lot of the engineers from other teams, again, as you say, anonymously, they'll never go on record to talk about anything. And of course, they don't get to play with the bike by definition. It's, it's not their bike. They don't get, come and have a look and see what you think, guys. They're all standing in pit lane looking at it from us. And even from day one, when I asked a couple of people, what about this new Honda? They said, look at the front of it. And I'm like, okay. And I'm... You know, I'm not a, a motorcycle chassis or, or engine engineer, but the front of the Honda looks, when you look at it front on, it's incredibly narrow. It's really beautifully narrow, even with the internal winglets on it. It's got no side section to it. For a four-cylinder across the frame engine, 
it's incredibly narrow. And that's what I mean about it. It's built like a little piece of jewellery. It's fantastic. But it also seems that the front end relative to the back end, the headstock height, the the gap between the, the, the bodywork and the and the wheel is quite high as a stock bike. And maybe that's what's wrong because what... And again, it's just a theory, but it's been... People keep saying to me, look at the front of the bike. So I think they've made it so narrow they've had to put components up or in, in places that they wouldn't ideally want to be. If you look at other people's overall designs and bikes, which are all almost bigger than the Honda, all their stuff seems to be more massed down and forward and round the engine. And so that's one potential theory, because what the riders all complain about is they don't know where the front end limit is. When Batista crashes, it's, it's because of that. He's trying to find time he can't find. And Gordo, one of the things you always talk about in World SBK is these bikes aren't developed and designed around solely going around a racetrack as fast as they can. They have to deal with real world conditions. Honda has developed the Fireblade. It might well be a very expensive road going bike, but they've developed that to be a road bike. And, you know, there are inherent difficulties in transitioning that to a racetrack. Yeah, um, you have to make the bike strong enough in every plane so that when you hit a big bump on the road or you have a minor shunt on the road, it doesn't bend in half and break. We've said this before, but it's true. And it's something I think a lot of people outside superbike racing don't really understand. You can't, uh, that's, maybe the rules should change that you can weaken the chassis off if that's a thing, but we, you've never been allowed to do that in superbike. Um, so yeah, there, there are limitations that the road bike has to, to be. And some people from the beginning said, well, it's been a while since Honda made a competitive world superbike. It's been a lot of years since they had a really, truly competitive world superbike. Um, they have special bikes in Suzuki 8-hour, etc. And they're capable of winning. But maybe their, att- their first attempt to build a wrap quite different from the previous family of Fireblades just wasn't quite right first time completely. And even if it's half a 1% in the wrong direction... Half a 1% is 10 seconds behind at the flag, if that's your limit. If it's one thing that's stopping them, the overall chassis design balance, the the ride, the, 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 the natural height of the headstock or the, the balance of the engine within the chassis, then that is something you cannot, because it's Superbike, overcome. And But there'll be a very good reason why they did it for that in the first place, and it might be related to the road bike, not the race bike. Why have Ducati's got a single-sided swinging arm? Have they got it because it's a better engineering solution or have they got it because it's something that people always buy a Ducati expect because it looks fantastic because it's a kind of almost a trademark. Ironically, that Honda started off with, but they become synonymous with high-performance Ducatis is they, they have to have a single-sided swinging arm. And when they didn't, people didn't like it. When they changed it, people want a single-sided swinging arm. Well, that's the thing. You've got to you've got to cater to the masses of who's going to go out and buy it as well. And Gordo, before we take the next ad break on the show, I wanted to just uh, recap some of the other rider market news. I know this has been a very much a, a rider market show so far. So for the next couple of minutes, I just want to see what else is going on. And uh, you were speaking to Eugene Laverty in the weekend. I was chatting to him as well to see what the plan is for his future. And obviously a lot of uncertainty about the rest of this season for him with the RC Squadra Corsa team. But uh, any news about what Eugene's plans are. Uh, Eugene would like to stay somehow involved in BMW if he can. Uh, obviously, he needs to get himself a good ride with someone else. It's not impossible that if, uh, for say for example, Chaz were to move to Honda or somewhere else, um, that there would be a Go 11 bike, and that's a good ride. He, he understands the Ducati. Um, 
the Go 11 team wasn't the same team as it was as it is now. When he was there, he was just a year or two out in terms of getting in that team because they were still having some issues and all that. They got a lot more um, factory, for want of a better word, just after Eugene moved on. Um, the trouble is limited spaces. I mean, he'd be a good choice in any team. We know who Eugene is and what he can do. The problem Eugene's got is his CV now, because he's been unlucky in the last few years in terms of results, is is a bit thinner than it was when he was at the start of his, his championship career. He's won 13, I think, races. But the last one of them was a while ago. But it doesn't mean that Eugene wouldn't be a great pick for any number of teams in the paddock. But he might not get the bike he wants or a rider with 13 races would expect to have. Yeah, and I think it was interesting that obviously at Mizano was the best we've seen from Eugene this year before he had that crash. And it looked like he was really on the cusp of being able to do something. And then obviously we haven't really been able to see him since. So I think it's one of those ones where there are still flashes of what he can do. Whether he could do it 13 rounds in a row is a different story. But I think there is still something there that's that's worth someone taking a chance on if they're able to get it in the right set of circumstances. The problem for Eugene is there's also going to be a whole host of new riders coming through. And that's something that we're going to see over the next few years because there are some exciting riders coming through. I thought Luca Bernardi this week in Supersport looked really good. We've seen from Locatelli that you can transition from Supersport bikes into the Superbike class. Obviously, Luca's only 19. He turns 20 this week. So he's going to stay in Supersport you'd imagine another year or two, but he looks like a talent coming through. Manuel Gonzalez is a super talent coming through, but looks like he's going to be moving on to the Grand Prix paddock in the Moto2 class. Yeah, I heard that, and that would be a shame because he's uh, definitely a bit of a product of our class, but that's the nature of life. If he gets a chance to go to a bigger class and a bigger championship, great, you know, good on him. But we do have guys coming through who, as you say, an exceptional rider in super sport like Locatelli, there are not many super sport riders like that. But he he didn't come from super sport, he wasn't trained for super sport, and he achieved so much in his first year. He didn't just win it, he won it out of the park. And okay, on one of the better bikes. But that's not the, quite the winning bike this year. It's won races, but it's not the dominant bike this year. So it's not everything. Um, so yeah, fighting against the, the ideal situation, if I was in a, if I had a team in World Superbike now, and I'm thinking, well, there's experienced guys coming available. Maybe Chaz, maybe th- certainly Tom pro- probably wants to go somewhere else if he can get a good ride. And Eugene, you've got a choice of those guys. Pair it with a young rider. The the best cocktail to have in your in your garage in a normal season, in a normal time, with a bike you understand is an experienced guy to get the best of the setup, and a young guy who's so hungry and got to prove himself. He'll get even if he crashes six times, he might get on six podiums purely on um, on enthusiasm and desire to win and he'll get the maximum results possible. So an old guy, if you like to use that word, and a young guy is a great balance to have in a team. So yeah, there's, cho- there's choices this year, It's but it seems to be loaded towards the teams. It reminds me an awful lot of the Paddock Pass podcast, Cordo. Not, not with us, obviously. I mean with David and with Neil on the MotoGP side of things. The old guy, the experienced hand, and the young man coming through. But I think it's interesting that for someone like Gonzo, he's very highly regarded. It's unfortunate he had a big crash the weekend and had to sit out Sunday's race. But he came through from the 300 class. Obviously, he was in the European Talent Cup. Didn't have the budget to be able to move into CEV Moto3. So had to go into 300s. Came through really impressively. And 
we've had a couple of riders in the last few years in 300s that have been a little bit impressive as well. I, I'm a big fan of Adrian Huertes this year. He always finds a way to be at the front of the field, does a really good job. He's been able to battle it out with Tom Booth Amos all the way through this season. TBA's got world championship experience in Moto3. He's a known commodity and Huertes is beating him. That's a good sign that Huertes has potential. We saw Jeffrey Bowes do the same last year. I'd be surprised if Bowes isn't moved on to a super sport bike next year. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was with Tenkade as well. They want to have a young Dutch rider. So Huertes and uh, Jeffrey Bowes, two young riders developed by the 300 class that can come through into super sports and try and see if they're able to match what we've seen from the likes of Manuel Gonzalez. That's what we need to see. We need to see that progression because the 300 class, whenever it first started, like there's no two ways about it. It was a bad class for trying to develop riders because the bikes were too slow. They weren't teaching the riders the important things. They have speeded up a lot. So they're a bit closer to super sport. And now they're able to actually clearly with Gonzalez show that you can develop in 300s, transition, and then be a, a real success story. Yeah, and if this thing's a feeder class, which is what they all sold it as, uh, there was a lot of kind of cynicism in the paddock about having such a change from little slow 300s, which are now in reality 400s, um, and then suddenly jumping onto a full super sport bike, which is going as fast as the super bikes used to not that long ago, really. Um, and there was a lot of cynicism about that. And in the first couple of three years, it was it was well justified. Now we're seeing the fruits of that. And now we're understanding that the best riders there can actually come into super sport and, and do a job. And whatever anybody else thinks, that winning super sport races is very difficult. Um, the fact that you've got experienced Moto Two guys coming and doing an awful lot of winning recently is is a demonstration of that. Those guys have been racing at a higher level and not quite made it. But as soon as you put them on a good bike in Super Sport, they're right there. What what do you expect? It's obviously going to be the case. So it's made it harder for the younger riders to break through because the teams are now looking at Moto Two more and they are looking at their own paddock to bring people through. Now that dynamic is slightly modified because of what you say. You you've seen the value of somebody like. Uh, Gonzalez coming through, you can see immediately Huertas, as soon as he got on a, a good bike and a good team, woof, straight there. And his attitude is go, 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 win, win, win. As a young rider, that it's easy to tame that a little bit than it is to put it in where it doesn't exist. Bruce is very, very good young rider, clever, clever rider. What needs to be done in that class is exactly what you said there. They're going a little bit faster. The, when the bikes are too slow, too many people can go to the correct pace to, to fight, but not win. So they're messing up the best riders from moving on and showing how good they are. Because when they can lunge into a corner five abreast and it doesn't matter, then top riders end up getting swamped. You, you can't get away from them is what I'm trying to say. The faster the bike, the better. And when they go to super sport, they'll then be able to get away from a slow rider because they can use the greater power. Loris Barr has always said, Start him off in 600s. He was very, very cynical about the 400 thing. And he's kind of been proved right in a way. Um, but glad to see that that's changing a little bit. As you mentioned, it's, those guys are proving themselves. If you have a bad weekend, that's fine. But as long as you're finishing in the high level of that, you're a good choice for a 600 team. Yeah, because I find it quite interesting with someone like Bernardi because he obviously came from a 300 background. He raced in the Italian Italian Moto3 Championship and then moved on to the 300, won the championship in that, did another year alongside a, a World Super Sport 300 Championship as well. I remember at the end of his World Championship year, he was inside the top five on a few occasions. Looked like he was, you know, all right. 
but it was whenever he transitioned then onto a super sport bike in the Italian Championship a couple of years ago he was able to win it and now this year he's made that big step forward and it's always good Gordo whenever a kid's 19 and is doing that at the front of the field because when you look at the super sport class now Dominic Agutter's top class rider he was always good in the Grand Prix paddock everyone always saw him whenever he'd raced at Suzuka being a really good rider for Honda he's a known commodity Stephen Odendahl never really showed that in the Grand Prix paddock, did well in the CEV Moto2 Championship. Philip Ertl is a Grand Prix winner, lots of experience in Moto3 and a year in Moto2. And then you've got the likes of Jules Cluzel, super experienced rider, obviously going through a tough season this year. But him and Caracasulo, riders that you know how good they are. So whenever you've got Gonzalez, Bernardi, and even the likes of Chan Onchu coming through now as well, Onchu's made steps forward this season. It's good to see those young riders coming through. This is what Supersport always was in our paddock. It was a sort, it was a, a, a filter, if you like, um, for younger riders to come through. And if they could beat all the best guys in 600s, many of whom had, had a go at Superbike and it hadn't quite worked out for them, so, but they had to come back. Some of whom are absolute specialists in 600 and therefore very difficult to beat every week and over a season. It was always a kind of talent filter in our paddock, as it should be. That's what it should be. It, it, it's designed to be that. It's a middle class for a reason. It's it's not the top class, it's not the, the blue ribbon and, and flagship event, but it's a good championship in its own right. The fact that we've got younger riders even taking it to people with the experience of Odendal um, and Agatha and Clozel is and beating them occasionally is is an indication that that system is now back to the way it should be. The, 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 the function is functioning. Yeah, and I think that's one of the key things is you need to have those known commodities because how did we know Chaz Davis was good? He beat Keenan Safoglu over a season. How did we know that Sam Lowe's was good? He did the same. Same for Eugene Laverty going up against him. You were able to see that these riders had something about them because they were able to beat them. In BSB, it was you had to go through Shane Byrne if you were going to be able to get an opportunity to go to the World Championship. That's what you need in all those classes. We have that now and we've got Tons of good, experienced riders. Randy Krumenacker, a world champion. Guy that I think he won on his debut in Australia on a super sport bike. You know, he's been able to be a front runner in that class all the way through his time in super sport. He's struggling this year because the, you know, the package isn't quite there, but he's still able to run inside the top 10. It shows the depth of the class. It's really good for us going forward. And I think that's what's going to be interesting to see if any of the teams look to hire a super sport rider because someone like Dominic Agutter, even though... He's a bit older than what you'd view as being the rider you'd want to take up from Supersport. He could well be in play for a ride. It's going to be interesting to see who gets opportunities. So we're going to take another break on the Paddock Pass podcast. And when we come back, tell you what, Gordo, we're actually going to talk about the racing at the weekend what? instead of all the off-track news. Was it any? Goodness sake. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And 50 minutes into this show, let's start talking about <laughs> the championship, Gordo, because this is the best championship we've seen in a long time. It's that good. Even Millie the dog is getting excited just hearing about it in the background. But it's that good, Gordo, that you'd have to compare this year to Colin Edwards versus Troy Bayless back in 2002. Although we've actually got a third wheel in that championship battle now as well with Scott Redding. Yeah, well, um, whatever else the outside world uh, thinks of or how often he watched Superbike, this year is very much worth watching. 
because we've got a genuine two rider fight and potentially three. And remember, everybody's had their bad weekends this year. Everybody's had uh, their no finishes. There's been external influences affecting uh, the performance race by race. We are in a championship. And remember, what's the, so what's the big difference between those days uh, when you had that classic battle in the early 2000s and now? We have three races a weekend. We have more chances. If you have one bad weekend, your opponents have got three chances to make ground up on you. Nothing is impossible at the top of that championship this year. Um, we have three different competing manufacturers absolutely in there. Um, you never quite know which is going to be the one that's coming out on top. They're all different. All those bikes are different. The, the Kawasaki and the Yamaha are across the frame fours. Universal Japanese motorcycles, as we used to derisively call them many, many years ago. Um, but the Yamaha's got a funky uh, cross-plane crankshaft firing system. It's a different philosophy, even though it's basically the same design. Um, the Kawasaki is by far the most conventional, the oldest one, the lowest revving one, but it's also the most developed one um, with one focus of one factory on it all the time. There's no dilution, as many of the rivals to Kawasaki would say. Um, they are not running a MotoGP program. Everything they've got goes into their Superbike program. You've got Ducati, which is the still the number one leading winning statistics. Everything else is still Ducati, but that is increasingly becoming historic. Well, you've now got them pushing back into wanting to be. They, they see this as their playground and their right. This is their, their place. They're born to rule here. Um, and Scott Redding has recovered from some rocky times last year and this year um, and that's two weekends in a row where he's been there at two new racetracks so anything's possible from him we've seen that um, we have got a thrilling and thrilling uh, championship running through here and when you look at some of the other big championships there seems to be an obviously clear leader um, and each of them in our class we don't even with a six-time world champion and no big changes from last year, he's he might still be the favourite, but do you know who's going to be world champion in the end? Because I really don't. This year, I don't. I would always have put my money on Johnny because of the combined effort, experience. Johnny should have made his gap by now, and it hasn't happened. Well, what I think is quite interesting is the next few rounds are going to be really key because obviously Magnicore, Catalonia, Jerez and Portimao are tracks where, especially Portimao, we've always seen Johnny dominate there, triple wins. Jerez, he's been able to win world championships there. He always goes well in Jerez, but Yamaha go really well in Catalonia. Magnicor, top bracket suits his riding style. Yamaha's made that bit of a step. His favourite track? It, his favourite track. You know, and, and the, the big thing with Top Rack is, even though we always see all the replays of all the, the sliding through fast corners, this, that, and the other, like in, in Navarra, in Mizano, that's what we, we saw loads of replays of. Top Rack loves slow corners. You know, I think he's the only rider in the world that actually loves a ton of first gear corners. You know, Top Rack says that as long as he's able to really push the front end, he just thinks it's great. And you know, there's a few tracks that are going to really suit him. I think Magnicore is definitely one of them. Catalonia, we saw last year, the Yamaha was really strong. So even though we've got these tracks where the Kawasaki and Johnny have had so much success, the Yamaha is the best all-round package now. And Top Rack's so good. Like, yeah. I'm, I think we're really on a knife edge now. And what we've seen over the course of, especially the last 
I'd say the last four or five rounds is we've seen how hard Johnny has to push. Why did he have that mega save at Mizano? Why did he have that moment down the crane or curves where he somehow managed to stay on his bike? Why did he have the four massive saves in Navarra? Why did he have the crashes in Most? It's because he's having to ride at 101% so so much of the time. And I thought it was really interesting on Sunday whenever we were talking to Alex Lowes-Gordo because he was talking in terms of, I can ride like that for a lap or two laps. I don't have the experience with this bike to be able to do it for too much more than that. Johnny has the experience, the confidence, and probably the overconfidence of, I can make this work because I know what it's going to do. And he's able to ride like that for a prolonged period compared to anyone else that we've seen on the Kawasaki. I think it's interesting that Lowe's would say that because he's closer to Raid than we saw Sykes at the end of his time with Kawasaki, closer to him than Leon Haslam was over his year at Kawasaki and a lot closer than Lowe's was last year. Yeah, um, I think that everybody understands that the, the Kawasaki is not head and shoulders above everything anymore. It seems to be the same issue they're both having about, again, corner entry um, and Jonathan having to try and make up for... Um, you see his back end twitching a lot when he goes into uh, going into corners um, and it's always noticeable that that's where he's had his issues is going in. The crash in Moss, the, the, the two crashes in Moss both were same, different corners, but the same idea. That's where he's having to overstress because that's where you can make a difference. Say, okay, I'll, I'll make a difference getting to the apex and, and through the corner. Um, but you're having to ask an awful lot of your tyre. You're having to ask an awful lot of yourself, your own powers of concentration. So the other dynamic, I think, that's changed in the blue side of the world is that Top Rack is not having bad tracks. Not as much as he was. It used to be that the, either the Yamaha or him or uh, both sometimes would be it's not their weekend. Now their bad weekends are a third and that's a change. Can I ask you a question as well, Gordo? Because obviously within Kawasaki, the biggest rivalry since every year I've been working on World Superbikes from 2016 onwards, the biggest rivalry in the paddock has always been Pereira versus Marcel Dwinker. When you look at Yamaha and the team that Paul Denning and Crescent and Yamaha in general have been able to build, that is probably the most inclusive team I've I've seen in, in any form of racing. You've got Phil Marin and Andrew Pitt as your two crew chiefs. And both of them, they want to beat each other, obviously. They're super competitive individuals. But they work together really well. They've got Toprak and they've got Locatelli. Both of those riders want to beat each other. But how often do you see Toprak leading Locatelli around the place? How often do yeah. you see him walking over to the other side of the pit box to give him a little bit of advice? He wants Locatelli to be better. And the whole team seems driven to drive each other forward. Whenever, like Locatelli had another weekend where he three fourth place finishes, all of his team were on the pit wall celebrating his fourth place finish. But when Toprak came across to win race two, they were all hanging over the line for Toprak as well. They all wanted the blue bikes to do well. They wanted that team to be successful. And I think it's really interesting to see just how well they're working together because... At different times in the past, Crescent were a team that were, you know, a little bit, uh, I don't want to say, I, I, I don't know how, how to say it, but they were a team that was probably underappreciated for a long time. And now you look at what they're able to do, and a lot of it is still the same people within the box. A few people brought in from Yamaha, obviously, but it seems to be that atmosphere that's that's really helping drive them forward as well. 
Yes, atmosphere is a, a big element to do with that. Teams are teams. It's as simple as that. You can have the best football team in the world, but if they don't all play together for the same aim, they're not going to do anything. Um, yes, there's an awful lot of experience in that when you look at the people in blue across both sides of the garage. So there's the top level of it. They've got their own development arm, blah, blah, blah. There's lots. Of, they've had the elements there for a while. But when you look at the actual faces in there, and if you've been in the paddock for a long time, you think, well, that guy used to be an Alstari, and he was a top, top guy then. He nearly won the World Championship with that guy as an electronics guy. And you go through that team all the way, Moro, we've already spoke about. Alberto Moro, as everybody calls him, Alberto Colombo, everybody calls him Moro, is, is kind of the, the, the man that's going between both the houses, checking sure everybody's getting the maximum they can get out of it. Every single element of that is there. And you look at the, the as you say, Andrew Pitt, Super sport legend did very well one race in, in, in Superbike as well and now brings that competitive focus of a racer into the paddock and that experience is a direct experience as a racer into the paddock. Phil Marin, who came from the other side in a purely technical background, has got exactly that same lot of experience, worked in a lot of different places and now he can sniff that, well, here, that my rider can really be world champion here, I'm, I'm going to have a go. But as you say, they're all working together. What I would say about the Kawasaki side of things is Inside the the garages, those two those those two crew chiefs, those two crews are super competitive with each other, and that's a lot of history in that. But they all go into the same technical meeting at night time and talk about it all and discuss it and share things, and and they know that they need each other. They all need each other to move on, to move on, to move on. They do collaborate. They do because that's what's required. But and they're obviously much more publicly and and well known. Uh, had the disagreement, shall we say, and they'd love to beat each other. And they've also got very different backgrounds. You know, they've got one that's a pure engineer, university, all that, and one that was a pure racer and come into it from that side. The mix together lifts the bike to a certain level and then it goes down to the individuals in the teams and the riders yeah, have got and everyone else. I think it's interesting, obviously, that uh, over the years, Provec have had so much success. Both crews have had so much success, but they had success whenever... You, you could definitely argue the Kawasaki was the best all-round package and it was a bike that you could achieve so much with. They don't have that now. And obviously the big talking point all the way through the start of the season, Gordo, was about the homologation of the Kawasaki and the 500 revs that they lost. What, what seems to be lost in a lot of that is Kawasaki didn't try and homologate the bike until the very last minute. They'd already done all their winter testing before they submitted a bike to the FIM to be homologated. And then it wasn't given the okay. That's something that should have been done a long time in advance, considering that they didn't get the revs. You know, if they had if they had been able to do that earlier, and you know, there could be COVID restrictions, there could be any number of issues that caused that delay. But they spent the winter testing, assuming that they'd have those extra five hundred revs. They didn't get them, and I think we've seen the big penalty of that. And it's not in terms of top speed; it's because they have to run a very different gear ratio through, through the course of a lot of these tracks compared to other bikes. We saw it this week where Johnny in particular was having to make extra shifts compared to Toprak and Scott Redding. In that middle sector of the lap, he was clearly hamstrung a little bit. He wasn't in, in his ideal gearing for this track. And I think that's where we've seen them on a little bit of a knife edge. And that's where coming to this weekend, because there was so many first gear corners, we all looked at it and said, if Johnny's able to come away with a win, it's fantastic. But the goal has to be three podiums, live to fight another day. Yeah, I mean, there was, to go back to the original point, um, there was obviously a mistake made. 
someone read the rule book wrong, somebody made an assumption, um, and we know what that's the mother of all. Um, end of the day, they made a mistake and an assumption that they were going to get these 500 revs that they've been running with. Um, the FIM disagreed. They are the ones who are the custodians of the rule book and they didn't get the 500 revs they were expecting. So, yeah, somebody made a mistake, obviously. Who? I don't know. Um, but somebody inside the operation made a mistake or a misjudgment. Um, that mistake would have been communicated earlier if they'd submitted everything earlier as well, as you say, quite correctly. Um, so maybe some of it could have been uh, changed by the time we got there. But it's that's caused them issues, but it's actually ironically causing them more issues now than it did at the beginning. They seem to be able to be able to handle it better in the earlier races than they have in the more recent ones. But that's because other people are moving on even further. Um, so it's a it's a tricky one to, to look at and say what could have been done differently, except somebody uh, reading the rule book the same way the FIM did. Um, but it has cost them. And as you say, gearing is the the extra revs will matter down the straight. 500 more revs will be more top speed and will certainly be more slipstream ability, even with the fastest bikes. I saw uh, a few tweets at the weekend saying maybe they need to revisit the rules. Look at how easy it was for that Ducati to go past the Kawasaki. Is this fair anymore? Etc. Et somebody raised that flag at the weekend um jonathan didn't he didn't say that it wasn't there was he said us he could have tried not to get involved in that discussion although i think we all know that he would uh, desperately like to have those 500 revs um because there's two there are two elements that accelerating out of corner you've got more revs to play with but also as you say to make up for the gear and at different racetracks they're on the edge now they're at the end of development of that bike i believe they can make the engine even faster because they did in the past, but you'd need a huge rail change, which would then be allowed for everybody else, which would make their engines faster. You're not talking about isolation. Unless you start having special handicaps for people bike by bike, even more than we do now, that was what they looked after for the 500 revs. They've got the lowest revs of everybody else. They thought they would the 500 would make it fair for them, but it just didn't work out that way. BMW got their new engine homologated and Kawasaki didn't. And that's the end of yeah, it. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting as well to always look at it that I think people outside of our paddock look at it and think that the goal is parity and the goal is to make sure all the machines are equal. The goal isn't that in the superbike class. That's the goal in the three hundred class, where you want to have all those bikes able to perform equally. That was whenever we had five hundred CC Hondas, I think there was a, a three thirty or three, the three ninety KTM, and then I think the only bike that was actually 300 cc's initially was the Kawasaki. So that goal was to make sure that it was balanced across the across the class. In the new Super Sport regs, which are going to probably come into effect for next season, that's also going to be the case. They want to balance it out so that you can have Aprilia, Ducati, Yamaha, Honda, whatever you want, can all compete with one another. That isn't the goal in the Superbike class. The goal in the Superbike class is to have your natural bike, the production bike, and yeah, you might lose a, a little bit of power here and there to try and bring you a little bit closer to the rest of the field if you have a big significant significant advantage, like what Ducati had initially. They lost 250 revs. So, you know, they were held back a little bit, but they weren't held back all that much in terms of their outright performance for top speed, this, that, and the other. And when you look at it this season, with the three bikes, three different riders, three very different styles... Jonathan Ray, Top Rack Razgadioglu and Scott Redding have been consistently pretty much one, two, three. And their bikes and their lap times have been very similar. The points table doesn't lie. They find different ways of setting those times, different ways of winning races. 
but there's a good balance in terms of how they're how they're able to compete with one another. Yeah, there is. Um, I think the original idea, the Donna way, the the Donna FIM way, um, in Superbike was always we're going to do this by regulation, we're going to do it by rule, we're going to do it by restriction, we're going to make it fair for everybody. The previous way was performance equalisation was the great phrase that we used to use, uh, allowing different people different things to make sure that everybody was competitive. What's actually happening now is I, I, through the rule book, we are now getting to the realisation of that previous idea of performance equalisation. Um, the the rules are good in Superbike. It's a bit complicated. It's a very complicated. But the balance is correct now. What is now happening is that more people are reaching that more consistently than just Kawasaki and then other people round about. Ducati could be faster than them or slower than them, but we went on parity with them. We are now reaching that point whereby because of the rule book, because of everybody's development um, and the fact that they can bring in balancing changes. But when was the last time we needed a balancing rule change in any regard? I think the only time I can remember it was MV Augusta with the split throttle bodies an underperforming bike that this might have made a, a significant difference to give them a chance of being able to be a little bit yeah. more equal. But I mean, even revs and weight and all the things that are still somewhere in the back of the rowboat you can have, it hasn't changed for a while because what is stopping BMW winning and what is stopping Honda winning is not the rowboat. Not at all. and Not in any regard. Um, and maybe if Kawasaki didn't have Johnny, it would be that the, they had the, they would need to have a technical revisit to them to allow them to be competitive. Um, when you look at how the privateers are and so on, but the, then the, you go into how the teams are, how the right the riders they choose as privateers are. Um, but there is no if the BMW was a wee bit further down development road, and if the Honda had maybe been a slightly different bike in its original um, iteration when they designed it, or so we would have five manufacturers fighting for it. The rule book is not an a problem in Superbike World Championship. Sorry to bang on about this, but it just isn't. It's just not the deciding factor for races. It might be next year if Kawasaki don't bring a slightly different bike with a better engine. I'll be honest, this is the best season I can remember in a long time. You turn up to every track, everyone's competitive. We've had tons of great races all the way through the season. At the end of the day, Navarro Race 1 is very much an exception this season where it was a little bit of a dull race, stretched out. Then you look at Sunday and we had two great races. We've had that all the way through the season. The championship battle is very finely poised. I think that Scott Smart and the FIM have done a fantastic job. And anyone that's looking to nitpick their way through one thing or the other between different bikes, different manufacturers, different riders, I think that's when you're in the in the fanatic stage of being a fan and you're looking for your rider to to always win races. Johnny Ray is the best superbike rider there's ever been. That doesn't mean Johnny Ray should win every race. Yamaha have got the best bike all round this year, I think. We've seen that by the fact that Locatelli and Gerloff have been really competitive along with Toprak. That doesn't mean Yamaha are going to win every race either. Honda's got a huge amount of resources, huge budget for that team. That clearly hasn't made that they're going to win every race. So I think we were, we're at a really good point in World Superbikes where we've got tons of great riders that are able to get themselves to the front. We've got good manufacturers. We've got BMW putting in the resources. At the end of the day, they've gone out and signed Scott Redding. They're not afraid of opening a checkbook. They showed that last year with Michael Vandermark as well. Honda showed that they weren't afraid of doing that. They can all get more competitive and we can have five manufacturers at the front of the field potentially, as it is right now. Honda and BMW could have competitive weekends at any given point through this season. 
but they're not the all-round package of the other three bikes. It's tough to get yourself in and amongst it. Yeah, I mean, it's as I say, the rulebook is not the issue. The the competitiveness, you've got three special riders this year, but you've got other people that have made podiums. You've had Michael, Michael uh, Ruben Rinaldi winning races as well, but there are three, for want of a better word, special rider and bike packages right now because it's racing, because those guys have reached a point in their lives and their experience where they're able to do better more often than the other guys and drag themselves away in the points. But every weekend, you don't know which one of them's going to win. So that's a championship and it's a fight in its own way. It's better than the old days when the only people who were going to win were factory Honda and factory Ducati riders on Michelin tyres. People forget that. Those guys are finishing half a minute in front of people sometimes. They were finishing 10, 20, 30 seconds ahead of their teammate who was on exactly the same stuff. And then there was everybody else. And anybody who was on a certain brand of tyre was guaranteed to be 15th. We're in a better situation and the, the the other proof of the pudding to back up exactly everything you said there, which is all correct, is the privateers. The the A the rules make it impossible for you not to have 95, 98, 99 percent of the bike that Jonathan Ray or anybody else are the, 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 the top of their manufacturers on, because you can just go and buy it. It's price capped and there it is. They have to supply it. The electronics comes a little bit later. Most of the time they just give people the electronics weekend to weekend and say, There you go. Because it would take more resource and time and effort to give them different ones than the factory team have got. Yes, they put limits on it so you can't tweak here and you can't do there. Basically, to stop teams that haven't got the electronic resource from playing in areas where they probably shouldn't be. Um, that's controversial. That's one element of the rules that people say, oh, I want to play with it. They, but they get the people go around now and give out electronics packages. There you go. That's your weekend stuff. Run it like this. Um, we've never been closer for the privateers. Look at what Bassani's doing as a rookie, as a young rookie, in this class is only really ever ridden as far as I can tell, Supersport. You look at Gerloff and the supposedly second string Yamaha team. Um, okay, there's been different issues, rider issues, but he's still a podium guy. You wouldn't surprise you if you podium at the next round. You look at all those top privateers through the field that, are, that have got a manufacturer that's already winning, and it can be their weekend next weekend. If they get everything lined up properly, why not? Mahias, we'll see more of Mahias before his season's out. He was sixth straight back from injury, missed the last round, and he was sixth in Super Bowl, I think, or sixth in one of the practice sessions. You know, that this is the real proof that the rules are good and everything's competitive now. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the big things as well, and we're going to hear from Alex Lowe's in the Rental Street Sessions interview, is about where that balance is right now. And uh, myself and David sat down with him at the Dutch round a couple of couple of rounds ago so we're going to play that at the end of the show it's obviously a very long show for uh, World SBK post Navarra but there's been so much to get through so for anyone that's been able to sit through me and Gordo all the way through uh, fair play to you and it's uh, definitely been uh, it's definitely been a year where we've had so much to talk about Gordo it's been a very different season in Superbikes we're lucky to be able to cover it and we're lucky that you know we're only halfway through it basically yeah, I can't believe it that we're only halfway. It seems like we've done, you know, 10 rounds, not seven. It's, it blows my mind to think we've done that. We haven't even done any long hauls yet. You know, I mean, it amazes me. It's, it, I'm, 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 I'm have to say, it's been enthralling this year. That it's, it's, it's been really cool. Um, and you need that. You need the racing to be good. You can have everything else in play and all these manufacturers, but you need the racing to be good and the racing to be unpredictable. And even when it's been people crashing when you don't expect it or whatever, that's what we've had. 
It's been a great year. I hope it carries on the way it is. I can't see any reason why it wouldn't. I don't see somebody motoring away. Maybe Johnny's experience is going to tell in the next few rounds. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Who knows? But that's the point. Who knows, Steve? The one thing about that is I don't see Toprak making mistakes. He hasn't made a exactly. mistake all year. Exactly. And that's what I think is the big thing. Johnny's never been up against a top rack. He's been up against, and we said this in the previous show, he's been up against riders that have gone to superbikes and suddenly they're back on form, they're back at the front, they're back competing to win races. Top rack, on the other hand, is a rider that's always on the rise. He's a rider that's come from stock six to stock five to being in the in, in the midfield packing superbikes to then being a podium man, to then being a race winner and now being a title contender. He's always been on the ascendancy and now he's got the chance to win the world championship and like I, I was talking to Toprak after uh, race two and all I could say to him was I gave him no chance I wrote him off in the middle of the race I even said it I think it was on lap 10 or something like that I said I'm going to risk the ire of Turkey Toprak's got no chance of holding on to this win because I thought for sure Reading was going to be able to use his tyres pick off Toprak and show the extra pace and potential that the Ducati seemed to have over the weekend in Navarra Top Rack found a way to get it done. And I went down, I was talking to Top Rack, I was talking to Phil Marin after it, and I just had to hold my hands up and say, I was wrong about this one because they did such a good job. And I think that's going to be the case all the way through the season. And we're going to have it where Reading's fast and competitive all the way through. So I'm excited for the next round in Magni already at this stage. And, and I'll add a third one in there. Reading, despite being asked twice, once by me and once by someone else the next day, have you relaxed a little bit? Now you realise that you're not going to be staying with Ducati and the pressure's off, etc, etc, that it's it's changed your, your approach to the racing. I think it has. He said, no, it's just racing, I'll try and win every time. But he looked like a more relaxed unit from the first time we saw him right, right through. Even when news of tight changing manufacturer during the weekend, it didn't set him off. It, it calmed him down. I think... He's he's more calm in his approach. Yeah, he's he's. You saw him cycling when when his bike was running out of petrol. You saw him sitting on his bike cycling and and kind of having a laugh. But it's not like you, normally that's what happens when riders give up. He then went out and hammered out two races and nearly won the other one. He's more relaxed, so maybe that's going to be him at his most dangerous. Maybe every race from now on we're going to be looking at the top of the championship, and every race now on Reading's going to be the one that's going to make five points here and seven points there and creep up to the other two because he's just so relaxed and he knows he's not going to be with Ducati and this is his last chance to win on Ducati. I always think it's interesting, Gordo, that some riders need to spend all of their time focused on prepping for the race weekend. <laughs> they need to sit there, go through all the data with their crew chief. They need to do this, that and the other. And then there's other riders that just need to need to chill they need to relax they yes. all do the, they all do the same thing they all train as hard as possible but being able to get the most out of themselves on a race weekend can take very different things scott looks like he's got that balance now and it's exciting going forward but uh, we're going to finish up today's paddock pass podcast like i said with a rent all street sessions interview with alex lowes Alex Lowe's joining us on the Rent All Street Sessions interviews. And Alex, this has obviously been a, a fun year for you. Second year on the Kawasaki, a year with a lot more experience on the bike as well. And a winter where you've really been able to, to learn the ins and outs of the bike. Yeah, it's my second uh, second season on the Kawasaki. But obviously last year was not a full season. So I didn't get to try the bike in all different circuits. It was predominantly was racing in Spain, obviously, because of the travel restrictions that we had with the COVID. So... Um, yeah, I feel a lot more prepared this year and it's quite nice because, for example, Dorrington was the first time there on the Kawasaki. Aten's going to be the same. So 
it's, even though it's my second year on the bike, I'm still having a experience, no experiences for the first time on a lot of the tracks. So, um, yeah, it's good. It's exciting. And uh, it's been a decent start to, to 2021. How have you found this year compared to last year, whenever it's been a much more normal off-season, a norm, more normal season? Obviously, inside the team, last year you had to get to know everyone. This year, you kind of know what to expect. Yeah, um, like I said, last year, you, everything's new. So you're trying to understand the working relationships with people, understanding what it's like on a race. It's easy in testing, but on a race weekend, when the, the pressure's on, the stresses are on, how to get the most out of everybody. So you're always a lot more prepared the second year. And uh, yeah, it's obviously ever-evolving. We can, I can improve. We can improve our relationships. I can improve with my riding. That's that's one of the, the fun parts of, of the job. So um, yes, it's, it's a nice atmosphere in the team. It's getting better all the time. And it's I think it's one of the it's going to be a good year for World Superbike. And now how it started, I think it's been good and close racing. Obviously, the season's been different as well. I mean, like last year was just completely weird because you, yeah. you know you start in February and then you don't do anything until almost August, I think. Now again, uh, it's sort of been stop and start, uh, and now you, you're coming into quite a, a, a tough stretch. Yep. Um, how do you prepare for that mentally, physically? Um, yeah, physically, we had a break after Donington. Um, obviously, we've got this race in Assen, and from the start of August in, in the Czech Republic, with some tests thrown in in August. So from the start of August till October, we're pretty flat out. So I need to make sure we're, we're nice and, and fresh going into this next period. But yeah, mentally, it's the hardest part was last year in the lockdown because our whole lives, we live by schedule, whether it's the next test, the next race, right, winter, we know we've got this much time off, and it's you, you're always looking for what's coming next. And with the lockdown, with the COVID, unfortunately, we didn't know when that was. So that was a bit strange. Um, but obviously, it was the same for everybody. And it was, it, I, I find it harder because I didn't have much experience with the team with the bike. To come jump back on the bike was almost like starting again. Whereas I think if I had a lot more experience on the bike, it would have been easier to pick back up after the lockdown. But um, like I say, it was obviously it was beyond anyone's control. And there's, uh, it wasn't too bad. I'm not going to sit here and complain about having to sit at home. It was, it was, Everyone was obviously struggling with, with the different schedule last year. Living on a schedule, I'll obviously news fairly recently about twins on the way. That's something that's always a bit off schedule whenever that's announced. Yeah, but I'm at that age now. So luckily for me, I've got a, I've uh, managed to, to have a, find myself a nice girl and beautiful wife with Corrine. She's going to be obviously have it a little bit harder than, than me. But um, yeah, this is nice part of life and it puts a bit of perspective in, into racing so I see it as a as a positive thing Did your mum and dad give you any advice on how to deal with twins yeah my dad gave me a lot of advice but when I speak to my mum he didn't do much so I don't know if I had to take that but obviously they've been through it my brother's got uh, Catherine's coming up three now my, my niece so I have enough people with some experience but it's uh, you don't you're not really prepared are you you just got to do the best you can but it's a part of life that I'm looking forward to and I think it'll just help me Probably not at certain times when they're not sleeping, but in general, I think it'll help me chill out and, and understand, like I say, with a bit of perspective. So the perspective on it as well, it surely it brings your career into perspective as well. You're at the age now where you're able to look back on a, a lot of experiences you've had. But uh, when you look at racing now, how does it differ to whenever you were, say, 20? Like, Do you take the same approach now or do you look at it from a much more rounded perspective? Um, I think in any... All of us as adults, you always still think you're 21. You don't realise how, how fast it's gone. But I feel a lot different now to when I was 20. When I was 20, I was I feel like I'm riding better now. To be honest, I just used to ride on 
when you're younger, you just ride on how fast you are. You don't have any proper experiences to, unless you've had a lot of really good guidance from a young age. You just you, your experiences have to shape how you how you improve, how you improve yourself. Whereas back racing in BSB, I was just riding the fast as fast as I could, and luckily for me, it was fast enough to do quite well. But now I'm a lot more prepared, understanding World Superbike, the way electronics is improved, the way you have to set up the bike up. There's a lot down to that, so you need to be a lot more aware of what's happening I, I would say but in terms of motivation I still I still feel great I still feel like um, I'm working every every time for the next race to improve I still my target is to still be World Superbike champion a little bit disappointed how last year ended up going the start of this year has been okay but just okay really and I'm looking forward to trying to somehow make that next step to be con consistently fighting Johnny and, and fighting for wins obviously getting yourself set up right in the bike is a key thing um, on these rental street session interviews we always tend to ask the riders about what they want in terms of their riding position on the bike like what's the big things that you're searching for on your world SBK bike yeah you need to obviously feel comfortable on the bike because you're, you're racing for a long time but you need to be obviously Use, making sure you can use all parts of your body your legs your your your, your torso your, you want to be maximizing anyone that's ever rode really well on the bike you look at them and you think that that looks like the bike's made for them so that takes a little bit of doing when you change from different bikes different manufacturers because the seating position and all that sort of thing is a little bit different but normally when you get something you're happy with you sort of you sort of stick with that then and try to take that take that through with you have you had to change your riding position as things you know, you've switched bikes, uh, bikes develop, bikes change, yeah. uh, electronics becomes a, a, an issue. Have you had to change your riding position because of this? Are you, like in GP, what we've seen is the handlebars are moving out, up yeah. and out. Yeah. Uh, are, are, you, are you changing your handlebars and how much difference? And does it also take getting used to when you do have to change? Yeah, it does take a bit of getting used to, but, but yeah, from the... For example, the bikes I was riding in the past, maybe the Yamaha, for example, a bit softer, but easier to ride. So you can you can sort of hang off the bike a bit more, and you don't have to work the bike so hard. The Kawasaki is a little bit more difficult to ride. So in terms of stability of the bike, it's stable, but it's, it's heavier. So when you're changing direction, you need a little bit more leverage. So I'd say that it's more of a old school style on the Yamaha, and more of an aggressive sort of opened out style on the Kawasaki. I think you can see that when you look at people. Even Jonathan, for example, riding the bike, he's not riding the bike, like, you know, leaning off as much as, as maybe some of the other guys. I think that's a lot down to the, the, the different characteristics of the bike. But it's about, um, I think as you're, in, in our job, you, you see different riders, you might have little injuries or different things that happen that also shape your, your position on the bike. So it actually does, you're, you're always looking at what you can improve. A good thing for me when I was working with Andrew Pitt at Yamaha the last couple of the years, he worked really hard on that. And even though I'd been on the, the bike previously, when he joined as the crew chief, we made some good steps from a position. Some things I didn't really think of with my foot pegs and, and, and how to be an ex-rider like he was. He was able to give me some some constructive advice and we got the we got it. So I, was work, I felt like I was using my body a, a lot better, even though the bike hadn't changed at that point. So now I'm quite aware of being ready to adapt if I feel like I can make a positive change. Obviously enough, Al, in the past you've done the Suzuki 8 Hours, you were yeah. teamed up with Katz on the Yamaha and a lot of it was geared towards him for most of that time. 
and then yeah. suddenly whenever it was yourself and Mikey had to do the race together Yamaha changed the bike position Vandermark was able to find an awful lot of time yeah. and then it turned out that Nakasuga was faster with that setup as well so it shows that everyone's able to find a compromise that can work yeah but, but the Japanese are ideal. Not, Japanese culture Japanese engineers well they're not they're not quick to make a compromise they're a little bit steady so you might want to whereas uh, this is just a what I've found, my experience working with them, is that they might want to change half a mil or a mil where you need to go five rear handlebars to make a difference. So when we was forced to do it because Katz got injured, we made a big change and then he tried it and it was like a, a pleasant surprise, which can happen sometimes in, in racing. But yeah, I always felt sorry for Marky because I felt like the, the bike was quite tight for me and he's another foot taller than me probably so he always did struggle but then obviously 2018 I think it was we raced together was great because it was comfier for me and it was so we went from Katz's position to Michael's position and I, I was somewhere in the middle so both was okay for me but definitely it was a bit comfier because you know when you're on the bike for an hour you don't want to be in a cramped position so yeah it's obviously important but then you go and do Suzuka and you ride something completely different and you still go fast it just reminds you not to focus on it too much because in the end, it's, uh, yeah, stuff like that really plays with your mind because you're still able to go fast, feel good, and then you say, well, sure, it doesn't make much difference. And you complain with your World Superbike team that you're riding all the time and you want to make small tweaks. So it's a funny old game, isn't it? Obviously enough for Suzuka announced recently, yourself and Johnny are going to be teamed up along with Lucas Myers. But uh, Suzuka's always been one of those big events on your calendar. If you think even back to when you were on the Suzuki, turned up you were able to lead in the first hour the Yamaha a lot of success on it yeah good obviously we've both got a good record at Suzuka so it's arguably the best superbike ride we've ever had so it's not a bad teammate to have when you're, you're trying to beat everybody else for eight hours so yeah really looking forward to being his teammate there it must be a completely different uh, mindset you know it's not uh, what is it 35 40 minutes balls out yeah. flat out uh, it's much more, it, it, you know, it, it's the tortoise and the hare, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you are thinking about that. How, how do you approach that differently? Do you have to hold back a little bit more or are you just sort of flat out for the hour and then hand yeah. it over? Yeah, to be fair, it's the only time I've ever had a pit board telling me to slow down. He says, okay. <laughs> I definitely never had one in World Superbike. Johnny might have done, but I, I certainly haven't. But it didn't work out too well, though. No, it didn't work out. Yeah. broke yeah. lap record yeah, that it, yeah, but I think this is what my opinion could be totally wrong. But the the World Endurance Championship, the 24 hours, I think it's a completely different approach to when we see Suzuka with the official teams, two or three riders. It almost feels. 95% of you riding almost like a world superbike race and the bike's obviously only got to do 8 hours you can push it a bit more whereas I think when you get to 12 hours or 24 hours it's a it's a different mentality because when I first went there I thought oh, just ride around at nice pace for an hour and, and that's it but in reality I think we've done Johnny has got the like record now but I'm sure we did 2 minute 6s in the race which is really hard to it's, it's a it's a fast lap time, so you push it. You're still pushing harder than, than than I expected before the first time I went there. But I don't think I think it's a bit of a strange race because you have the the one-off teams, you know, the teams that aren't doing all the championship. They're just focused on really trying to get the most out of that eight hours. I think that's what makes it a great race. I think it's slight, but I would like to do a 24-hour race maybe when I near the end of my career and just to see just to see the experience of, of the difference. I think it's almost like a sprint race to Zuka, but probably not going to do it with Sam because 24 hours. Ugh. I might be asking too much of him, but I would like to do it with an endurance race with my brother at some point.
Just you bring up Sam then as well. Obviously, it's always interesting whenever the two yous talk about each other because he's already able to be quite objective about it, even though obviously you want to be able yeah. to support each other. What's been your assessment of him this season and over the last couple of years? Well, it's simple. He's one of the fastest guys. Obviously, I'm biased in some ways, but then critical in other ways. And the way I look at it, simple really, is he had a. T- he was doing. He made a big. If you look back now, a big risk to go from World Supersport where. He did well to Moto Two, which wasn't really done that much back then. Keenan tried and didn't get on as well, and he was battling with Keenan here, and he did well. He wanted to go. Fair enough. It wasn't the best deal for him, but he wanted to do it because he wanted to try and win a Grand Prix. That was his first target, which he did. And then obviously he got the Moto GP Aprilia ride, and he really struggled with his confidence that year. But personally, knowing him like I do, just as much off the track as on the track. And the people didn't really support him and he saw another side of it. He'd been lucky to work with, even with Luke, um, with Boscoscuri in the Moto2 team. He's still a nice, it was a nice environment. There was sort of small team and looking after him like in World Supersport. And he, he saw the worst side of people, let's say that, yeah, not, not, not the worst side of people, but it's easy to lose support in, in someone when the results aren't coming. There's always the rider, let's say, is always the first person that takes the brunt of it. That's just how it is, unfortunately. You know, it can be like that. And he struggled that year. He really didn't enjoy it. Lost a lot of confidence. Then he didn't have many options. Go back to Moto2 with a, a team that was struggling and then he didn't, they were struggling to finish the year. We had a lot of tough conversations. I think one time and at the end of that year, he was like, not finding it easy. Still believed he could do well. He was on about maybe coming back to BSB or trying to understand what he was going to do. Obviously, no one really sees them conversations. But I said to him, I... He said, I just need to enjoy it again. He said, I know I can do well in that class. But to go back to Moto2 with the guys that are on the opposite end of their career that are coming from Moto3, trying to get to MotoGP, it's a hard class to go into, rebuild your confidence and try to win. And I remember he said to me, I I know he really believed in himself, but he just needed to get his confidence back. So then to see what he did last year was great because... He destroyed his shoulder in the first test. It was real bad. They wouldn't let him race in Qatar. He worked so hard during that lockdown to get his shoulder and that back good. So then to, to go against them riders and be as good as he was, although what was, for me anyway, was, was amazing really because they're, they're guys that have gone to GP and doing well. Then you've got the other side of Sam, which is just frustrating side because he would have been world champion if he, didn't, wasn't, if he wasn't going around Valencia trying to break the lap record in free practice three. He, only, he was nine points short and he did the last two rounds with, with one arm. With Well, not one arm. It was well, His right hand was quite bad. So he's like frustrating in that regards because he's got a lot of talent, but he just sometimes puts, he just, he loves it too much and just pushes a bit too hard. So that, that I would say is frustrating. And this year has been similar really where he can be so fast and win like he did, win like he did in Qatar, but then have a couple of mistakes and, and now be on the back foot a little bit. But, if I had to sum it up, I think he's been great. I think when he take a step back to, to rebuild yourself in that class like he has, I'm quite proud of him. I just hope he can just tidy it up a little bit and, and get the world title he des- deserves over there because I, I fully believe he can. So, two related questions, if you like, because you've, especially speaking about Sam, the lesson of Sam is the package is really important, being on the right package, in the right team, with the right people around you. Uh, that's important to you. And also yourself in a MotoGP is that something you would think about? Would it again be something where the package would be really important? Yeah, I'm not going to race in MotoGP because the facts are I've not done well enough in World Superbike, really. You can sit here and try to, oh, I'd like to, yeah, of course, I'd like to race in MotoGP, but what's happened in World Superbike is 
I've done a really good job, but not quite a really, really good job. I'm consistently there now. If you look, the last three years, fourth, fifth. On a good weekend, I can challenge on the podium and do well. On a bad weekend, he's still fifth or sixth. That's not good enough if you want to race in MotoGP, and I'm not stupid. I know that, and I'm, I need to work really hard to make a step here and then try to be world champion here. So that's what my focus is on. It's not far away, so that's the nice thing, turn up at every race, knowing if I do a good job, I can be on the podium. In terms of MotoGP, I've not done well enough to get that. If I'd been winning races like Johnny and I had a chance, I'd love to do it because I had a little experience before and it's great. The, people say, oh, yeah, well, super bright. I was surprised with, with Top Rack, really, if you had the chance because it's just better bikes with better technology riding against better people. It's great. There's not really... But there's nothing wrong with World That's great as well. But if we're all simple and honest, that, that's what it is. But for me and how I've done, I've not quite done well enough to earn that shot. But I've got enough motivation and enough hard work that I need to be doing here to try and get up and be challenging for wins here. So I'm happy with that. What do you make of World SBK at the moment then as well, Al? Because obviously when you look at all the manufacturers getting closer and closer, we've got yeah. more and more top riders in the yeah. class. It just has gotten yeah. more and more competitive. I think it's the level of the ride is a little bit better than people think, really. And I think the bikes have got a lot better than, than people think. I think from when I joined on the Crescent Suzuki in 2014 to now, the five or six manufacturers are a lot closer. And it is quite close and there's a lot of good riders and it's it's not easy to, to do well. I think that the bikes have, obviously I saw the trajectory I was on, with the way the Yamaha was improving when I left and obviously jumping on the Kawasaki, I know how good that bike is. I think Ducati's got some good qualities. I think the BMW are working hard. Honda is obviously a big, big project. So I think it's exciting. I think that it's not easy just to jump in World Superbikes and be at the front. And I think the racing has been great. I've, 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 I'm really, I'm really enjoying it to be honest. Because if you have a bad session, you're tenth, eleventh now, and even we're seeing with with Johnny is as consistent as Johnny is and as consistently fast as he is. Now, more times, he's, he's sort of he's finding it harder to be there, and I think that's good. It's good for the championship. Probably not good for for us. We need to be improving a bit more, but I think it's good for the championship. Yeah, it's good for us on my side of the table, yeah, anyway. I bet. I bet. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Rental Street Sessions for the Paddock Pass Podcast, Al. No problem. Cheers, guys. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.